Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Carroll is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Happy Thanksgiving week, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. This is always a great week because the work week is shorter and quieter for many people unless you're in the grocery or retail business. It's a good eating week. A lot to be excited about that. My mother makes the best stuffing or dressing if you're here in the South and the best apple pies. Can't wait to eat both, plus the turkey and all the other wonderful side items that she's going to make. I hope it's a great week for all of you and a wonderful time to spend with family and friends as we give thanks for all the many blessings that we have in our lives. I am grateful for the wonderful parents, my wife, my three kids, my in-laws, all the outstanding guests who have joined me this year and over the 10 seasons of this show, plus the folks over at the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, in particular, Jennifer Bertetto and Justin Labor. My wonderful supporters, I thank you all so very much for being a part of the show. And of course, to all of you for listening and supporting this show. I'm a lucky guy, and I have been very richly blessed. All right, on to this week's show. And I've got four wonderful guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you this week. Starting with one of the all-time great instructors in our game, Jim McLean. Jim has a lot going on at his golf schools, namely helping players reach the top of their games. And he's done it with every level of player from junior players to college players to guys out on the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour. We're going to talk about some of his young junior players and the great success that they are having. We'll go back to his college days when he and his teammates like John Mahaffey and Bruce Litsky were winning the national championship at the University of Houston. We'll also get some tips on how to get a little more distance off the tee. Looking forward to having Jim back as part of the show. He's going to join me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from former PGA Tour pro and one of the all-time great golf analysts in the history of our game, and that is Frank Nabilo. We're going to get into Frank's recent comment about tour players being overpaid. We'll hear the context about when he talked about that. I'll get his thoughts on the PGA Tour and the PIF proposed partnership, which is supposed to be finalized here in the next few weeks. And then we'll go back to his tie for fourth performance at the 1994 U.S. Open at Oakmont and talk to him about his memories about that and several more memories from his time out on the tour. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Following Frank, I'm going to be joined by Ron Reed. Ron worked for the USGA for over 20 years. He was the starter at every U.S. Open from 1986 to 2010. We'll hear what that was like. I'll get into some of his favorite memories from those U.S. Opens and what it was like picking up that microphone for the very first time in 1986. Ron is going to join me a little bit later on in the hour. 
And then we'll round things out this week with a return visit from PGA Tour lead rules official Stephen Cox. Stephen does so much to get the tournaments we see each week running smoothly. He and his peers do a heck of a lot more than just roll up in a golf cart to hand out rulings. We're going to get into some of the tough rulings that he's had to hand out over the course of his career. We'll talk about his membership at TPC Sawgrass and look ahead to the players in March, plus the tremendous start that his daughter has had playing junior golf and now getting ready to play her college golf. We'll talk about her great success and him getting to witness a hole-in-one that she made when they were playing in a parent-child tournament a couple of years ago. So looking forward to having Stephen back as part of the show. He's going to join me about an hour from now. So a lot of fun, informative things coming up for you tonight on this week's edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me. Before we get started, our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, and I have been working with a company called Kickpoint. And they have done some magical things with our logos and create some polo shirts with some wonderful designs where they take our logos and turn them into designs on a polo shirt. They're absolutely outstanding. Kickpoint Golf is a private label custom golf apparel company making bespoke polo shirts, quarter zips, and hoodies for those selected clubs looking to take their branded game to a whole new level. If you want to check out their apparel, and again, it's going to knock your socks off, send an email to info at kickpointgolf.com. They'll get right back to you. There's no middleman. They're going to go right to the guys that do this work. You're going to check it out, and you are really going to love what they do. I'm going to start showing the uh, polo shirts that they designed for me on my Instagram, at CT Mascaro. Check them out there so you can get a sample of what they look like. These guys know where it's at. Now let's talk about golf getaways and buddies trip locations. When you're thinking about that, think about our friends over at the McLemore which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Keep, is under construction and will open summer of 2024. The Keep is a Bill Bergen, Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You gotta see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. Go online to McLemore.com to book your stay and play package. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus black grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. 
com. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is one of the all-time great instructors in the history of our game, and that is Jim McLean. Jim is from the state of Washington, and as a junior player, he won the Washington Junior Championship twice. He also won the Pacific Northwest Amateur title three times, the Seattle Amateur, and the Four States Amateur in Texarkana, Texas. Played his college golf at the University of Houston from 1969 to 1973, where he teamed with legends like Bruce Litsky, Bobby Watkins, Bill Rogers, Tom Jenkins, and our good friend John Mahaffey. And he helped the Cougars win the 1970 National Championship. And they also finished second in 71, 72, and 73. His 41 career season round still has him ranked tied for 10th all time at Houston. He finished fourth in the 1971 U.S. Amateur Championship. He was named All-American in 72, graduated with his degree in economics. And he is one of few players to qualify for the U.S. Junior, the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Open, and the U.S. Senior Open. He played in the 1972 Masters as an amateur, and he made the cut, finishing tied for 43rd. He won the Northwest Open and is a three-time winner of the Pacific Northwest Amateur Championship. He won the Pacific Coast Amateur Championship at the Olympic Club in San Francisco. As an instructor, he's won just about every award there is to win, including being inducted into four Hall of Fames, including the World Golf Teachers Hall of Fame. He's worked with dozens of legends, including four that are very near and dear to my heart and have been a big part of this show, which include Gary Player, Jane Geddes, John Mahaffey, and Hal Sutton. His instructional schools have certified over 400 teachers, and I am very honored I get to have Jim back with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, thank you, Chris. It was nice to be with you tonight. So, Jim, I saw that our good friend Tom Patry just recently joined you at a teaching summit that you put on. Talk about what you had going on there. Well, yeah, we had a really nice summit. Uh, I do a two-day teaching summit for our, our teachers at both of our schools down here in Miami. Um, and we brought in some great people this year, including Tom Patry, with, who told some fantastic stories. Jason Bale has been the teacher of the year in South Florida. Jason Sutton has been the teacher of the year in, in North Carolina. And I think in South Carolina, too. Jason Birnbaum from New York. Jake Tolliver uh, from L.A. Country Club. And he just took a new job here in in. Palm Beach, Florida, and also my friend, Dr. Tashinko, who's a, a tremendous uh, anatomy expert. So, yeah, we had a great group. And then the next day we had our presentations from our own teachers here. So it was a really two great days for us. Jim, I saw a clip out on Twitter where you were working with some of your junior players here recently, including Emma Lee. She is the Met Section's Junior Player of the Year. Tremendous young player. Talk about what you're working on with her. Oh, well, Emma and I have worked together since she was pretty young. They come down during the winter, the uh, Lee, the great Lee family from New York. Uh, her sister, Caitlin, I actually talked to her today, just graduated from Yale recently. She's going to be a doctor, and her other brother is playing at Penn. And uh, Emma's the youngest one. She's got a lot of talent. Um, so we work on brushing up on her setup and some fundamentals and a little, little better impact alignments. I uh, had a great time with her. Her dad's a top uh, hand surgeon in New York. So uh, they're just great, great folks. And they great, uh, great to see them down here. Another one of your great young players that has had some success here recently is James Nicholas, who got through 
Q School for the DP World Tour. Talk about working with James. Yeah, James is another New York guy. His father is a doctor also. They're very good friends with the Lee family. James and I started a little journey about a year ago to, you know, completely commit. Um, we set up a game plan. Um, he won the first stage of PGA Tour School, so second stage is next week. But in the meantime, he went over and went through the tour tour schools in Europe, and he just went to the finals and made it through and has full exempt status on the DP World Tour. So it was really exciting times for us here at uh, at the golf school. And James was just here yesterday. My son, John's worked a lot with him on his short game. Uh, so that was really exciting. I mean, that, that was a, a big thrill for me uh, to see James, you know, make this tremendous uh, leap in his career. Yeah, let's take that a step further, Jim. As you watch these young players, and obviously you've worked with so many great players over the course of your career, as you've seen those players go on and have success, whether it's at the junior level, it's at the college level, or it's at the tour level, when you look back over all the positive impact that you've had over the course of your career, that's got to be hugely fulfilling for you to see the success that your players have gone on to have. Well, yeah, it's just, it's really uh, a great thing in in my life to have the opportunity to work with a lot of young people that have a lot of dedication uh, that make the effort and you know succeed in different aspects of life, just not just golf, but maybe going getting a scholar uh, a college scholarship and having success in college. And then once in a while, somebody even goes on, like James Nicholas here, on to playing you know, professional golf at the highest level. Jim, we frequently talk on this show about the difference between playing golf, playing tournament golf, and then playing golf out on a professional tour. What is the biggest difference in your mind? What is the biggest difference that separates those three things? Well, as it, when you get to that level, it, it becomes very much on the mental side, the ability to have the confidence to tee it up with people that you've maybe admired for a long time in your life, that you've gotten to a, that high a high level of playing and having the confidence to feel like you belong. Um, there's four main parts that I've always taught, the long game, the short game, the management game, which includes your outside of the golf course, managing outside of managing the golf course, but that's a big part too. But, and then there's the mental part. And they're kind of a pie of 25% in each area. But at the, when you're a beginner golfer or maybe an intermediate golfer, the, the long game is the most important thing to you because you want to hit the ball good. And then we can help people, of course, with their short game, how they manage their game and maybe give them some advice on the, on how to play a course, how to play the percentages. But with the mental part, that's, uh, that's the big part that's the separator that I've seen uh, in the ladies' tour and the men's tour because when you look at the players on the range, there's no way you can tell who's the best, who's going to be a success, who's going to be the great player. There's a lot of people that hit the ball great, but you have to put this whole pie together and all the subsets of the pie and be able to go out there and play what I'll tell you know some of the guys that want to play is you got to be able to shoot three tremendous rounds, say three 67s in a row, and then and then tee it up on Sunday 
on national or world world television and see Roy McElroy and Scotty Scheffler playing next to you and then do it again. If that's what it takes to, to win out there or to, you know, to be successful out there, you have to be able to uh, play with these great players and play the best golf of your life uh, on the weekends. And not too many people can do that. I'm sure over the course of your career, you've seen players that have beautiful golf swings, but can't put it together to get to where they ultimately want to get, whether it's out on the tour or playing and winning tournaments locally. Talk about the idea that you can have a really great swing, but that doesn't mean that you're going to translate that and being a, a regular winner out on the tour. Yeah, I would say some of the prettiest swings I've seen have been club professionals uh, that are nice nice players. They look good on the range. They have pretty swings. And then you look on the the LPGA Tour or the PGA Tour or the DP World Tour, and you see a lot of swings that you think, oh, wow, that's that's a lot. That's pretty different right there. And you could put Scotty Shuffler right there, you know, near the top of that with his feet are moving all over the place. He takes a club super high on his back swing. He's got a lot of odd things in there, but he's the number one player in the world. And also the same thing with Victor Hovland. He's got some some things that you don't look that great. And it turns out they're the, they're the best ball strikers on the planet. So from waist high to waist high through the impact zone, they've got speed, their ability to hit the center of the club face every time, and also to be able to do it on Sundays and, and, uh, that it's really not about a pretty golf swing. It's about having a speed, your ability to hit the center of the club face, your ability to have a shot shape that you trust and, and being having the confidence to pull the trigger, uh, when you have to and, and to be able to do it under extreme pressure. So it really isn't how pretty your golf swing is. It's how effective your golf swing is. So you talk about the challenge to be able to pull it all off on a Sunday on national TV when you're paired with a Rory McIlroy or somebody like that. When you see a player that is really good on Thursday, Friday, and into even into Saturday, but can't seem to get it together on Sunday to, to close the deal, how do you get them over that hump? Well, you have to look at deep into into what areas they're they're having the issues with and a lot of times that could be going to see a sports psychologist or um you know changing their mindset changing their pre-shot routine it's it's just a super complex question you just asked asked me you know there's there's no telling why some people are able to do it that have that ability to make a the impossible shot happen at the end and make a, a a long putt uh, when they need to make it to just make consistently make putts down the stretch of a tournament. And that's just separates the great players from really, you know, tremendous players. And, and then a lot of people that can't quite get it done. And it seems like it's luck uh, when these guys do it or these girls do it um, under the, in a major tournament. And some people just hit the lip or on the edge, but it turns out that these, these super Fantastic players, say like a Scotty Scheffler or Roy McIlroy or or Cameron Smith. There's there's so many of the of uh, these fantastic players that they're able to do it, and you know you just take your hat off to them. It's just an amazing thing. 
You mentioned pre-shot routine a moment ago. It's surprising to me how many of your peers have talked about how important establishing a pre-shot routine is. Talk about why it's so important. Yeah, I was talking to a college player today about that, and I I told him that um, pre-shot routine is not so important when you're playing with your friends or you're you're playing in a small event, but sometime you're going to be playing in a big event and coming down the stretch, and you're going to be choking your guts out. You got to have a pre-shot routine that you can rely on, that you can put yourself into a, a a routine and set your mind and make the routine the most important thing, not the outcome of the shot that's coming up, not putting yourself into the future, which is very hard to do. So the routine is something that you can rely on. And you can't just work on your routine, you know, on, on Saturday before the Sunday event. You know, this has got to be something that's ingrained that you pull the trigger at the same time. I was talking to him about taking the same amount of looks at the target, uh, putting a stopwatch on yourself so you have a reliable uh, preliminary set of rules that you follow and then you swing the club at the same time because a lot of us have been through this and it's very easy to take more time and to make the certain shots at the end of a tournament or um, at the end of a round, if you have your best round going and try harder at the end. It's very human nature to try harder or to be more careful. And that's something that you have to learn not to do. You mentioned putting yourself into the future. I think a lot of us are guilty of whether it's just playing with our buddies or trying to break a, a score, break 90 for the first time, break 80 for the first time. We project ourselves in the future. Boy, if I can just par these last two holes or if I can just make a birdie or maybe one of your players looking at the leaderboard. How do, how do you get people to stay in the moment and not project themselves in the future, thinking about what scores they need to have? Or do you think it's the right thing to do for a player, particularly out on tour, to be leaderboard watching so they know where they stand? Well, with the leaderboard, um, the fact is some players uh, look at the leaderboard and some don't. I, I've always thought that the great players watch the leaderboard. They want to know where they are. They want to know what, what they have to do or if they've got a two or three shot lead, how to finish out a tournament or if they need to step on the gas. But other players that have won PGA tour events, LPGA events, uh, don't look at the leaderboard because they don't want to get out of their routine. They want to just keep playing the game that they've had all the way through. So I, I would say it's a double-edged sword. Some people do good one way and some the other. Like I said, I think mostly you you would think, like in a basketball game or a football game or any other sport, that you'd want to know what you needed to do. But some people just can't can't handle that, and they they do they found they do better just playing their own game and just, you know, get to the finish lineup. That probably works pretty good, for, I think, for most average golfers. It's just try to keep playing your your own game because, you know, if you've never broken 80 and you shoot 38 the front nine, you're, you're thinking, well, what do I have to shoot on the back nine? If I could just shoot 41 on the back nine, I'll, I've got my best score. And then, you know, that's the kiss of death. <laughs> Indeed. Been there many times. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> 
Jim, for those of us who, who want to win a tournament on a, on a smaller scale, maybe it's our club championship, maybe it's a tournament in and around our city. How can we elevate our thinking and our game to be able to compete on that level and not psych ourselves out? Well, I think the focus has to be uh, developing your game from the green out, outward, uh, learning to have a, a good putting game. I, I know when I started in New York, as a young assistant at Westchester Country Club and the people I worked with there, I had a lot of experience playing tournament golf. And these people were, you know, wanting to win their fight in, at the club or whatever. And I spent more time with them on the short game, being able to putt well from inside of six feet to be able to have a routine there and, and to get their alignments good and then have a, a good chipping game a good pitching game, and I've always believed on a building block approach. So if you can build a good chipping swing with the good impact alignments, a good flat left wrist, uh, lead wrist at impact, and work more on that, that kind of bleeds into your pitching game, and then that bleeds into your full swing games. So I, I, I've always believed that you you kind of build up from the small swings outward and, and definitely having a... Uh, it all, you know, they hand out the trophies, uh, like Jackie Burke always told me, on the putting green. So spend more time putting. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, as a mid-handicap, that's what I am. And you talk about uh, looking from the green outward. One of the things that I have realized about myself as a, as a guy that kind of floats somewhere between a 12 and a 15, that I'm not good enough to go flag hunting. It's made a difference in my game to just, you know what? I'm going to aim for the center of every green. That gives me a lot of leeway that if I pull it a little bit, you know, I'm still maybe I'm on the left side of the green or just off. If I push it a little bit, same on the right-hand side. If I hit a little fat, I'm a little short. If I hit it a little thin, I'm a little long. But at least I'm in and around the green. Is that a right? Is that the right philosophy to have as a as a 12 to 15 handicap? Or should I be Ab trying to, are there greens or are there pins I should be aiming for? I think that's, that's a generally, the absolutely the perfect way to go just put a big x in the center of the green try to hit it on more greens definitely try not to short side yourself which means you know missing on the same side that the pins on <clears throat> giving yourself easier chips um i i think staying more toward the front side of the green so you're generally greens are pitched slightly toward you so you're pitching into the hill as, as opposed to going long but a lot uh, and then on the other hand I think most amateurs tend to, excuse me, tend to come up short on their iron shots. So one, one tip that I've also, also given to people is try and tell me what club did you hit over the green for sure? If you had to bet and then take one club less than that, but definitely your advice there right there, hitting to the center of the green is, is on the money. Jim, for players like me, what's one thing that you see all the time that if we could work on just one thing, we could shave off strokes from our scores. Well, hold the club up in front of you before you 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 address the, the the golf ball. Pick the club up in front of you and feel the weight of the club, which means grip the club lighter. You can see if you've centered the club in the middle of your body, but then put the club down and and uh, try to stay more relaxed. Jim, I want to get your thoughts because speaking of great <laughs> players, we saw Ludwig Aberg raised some eyebrows this past weekend during his win at the RSM Classic. Shot back-to-back -back 61s over the weekend. Finished 29 under, one by four strokes. 
We heard a little bit about him going into the Ryder Cup when he won the European Masters, but this kid looks like he is going to be a monster in 2024. He looks he, he looks like a you know a phenomenal player. I don't think he's got any weakness. His swing looks perfect to me. He's super long. He's a great putter. He's got the whole he's got the whole package. I, I agree with you 100%. I think he's going to be a looks like he's going to be a great player. He's mature. He's strong. He's got he's got the whole works. Jim, the Tiger and Rory TGL League is going to be delayed for a year after the arena that they were going to play in had the roof collapse. But that league, is that something you're interested in watching? Uh, no, not that much. I'm, I'm a little skeptical on that. I just, I, I don't know about watching guys play indoor golf. Uh, maybe it's going to be good. It doesn't sound that great to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, with you. So, Jim, as as we start to round round out the rest of twenty twenty three, what what are some things you've got coming up? What are you looking forward to in twenty four? Well, I've got a national junior event that we play up and the kids play in Broken Sound. That's March fifteenth to the seventeenth. Um, I'm gonna next year. I'll be, still be doing Sirius XM, the, the Masters, and the U.S. Open, the PGA. Um, I'm gonna go to my school in Utah. But yeah, we, we're we're anticipating a great a winter down here in Miami. We're, we're just gearing up right now. So Jim, I, I want to go back because one of the other things that, um, that I find amazing, you, you've, you've written a wonderful book. It's titled the X factor swing. Since we're all chasing more distance nowadays, talk about what the X factor is and how it can help us gain a little more distance plus some better accuracy off the tee. Well, the X factor was all about the, how the body works, the four turns in the swing, the angle, the, how much turn you get with your, your knees, your hips, your shoulders, and the movement of the head to gain as much of a coil as you can in your back swings. It was really the differential between the shoulder turn and the hip turn. And then what we've learned, you know, what we've, it's been known, but what we measured with the X factor was increasing the gap on the downswing, which means that the lower body, first the knees, then the hips, start the forward movement of the golf swing and the shoulders follow they don't lead the downswing and obviously the arms and hands are back so when you increase that gap you kind of put tremendous torque potential into your golf swing where you can rip the hands and arms through at the right time so it's it's how you load your body how you unwind from the top the change of direction that's a power producer uh, in the golf swing and, and the X factor was measuring some of these, um, n- numbers that we did way back when I was at Durrell. This happened in 1992. We measured uh, over a hundred guys on the PGA tour and, um, you know, it was, it, it caught on, you know, and then I ended up doing, taking the X to impact and, and, and doing DVDs and books uh, on that and still talking about it to this day. Jim, before I let you go, I saw your post about the monster fish you just caught a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. Talk about that. Well, I had a great trip to Louisiana, went to the LSU football game against Florida, and we went down to Venice, uh, Louisiana and caught, you know, caught some big redfish. It was really a, a blast. Thank you. <laughs> you Biggest fish I ever caught. Jim, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they follow all the great things that you're doing, whether it's on your website or it's over social media? Uh, it's McLean Golf on Instagram or YouTube and just JimMcLean.com. 
Well, Jim, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your very busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show with me this week. It's always a huge thrill to get to talk with you. I hope we get that privilege again soon. I do, too. Sorry about this little cough I got, but it was it was great to be with you tonight, Chris. And you've got a great show. And thanks again for having me on. Absolutely. Take care, Jim. Happy holidays to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thank you very much, Chris. Good night. See you, Jim. That is the great Jim McLean, folks, one of the best instructors in the history of our game. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at McLean Golf, M-C-L-E-A-N, at McLean Golf, and online at jimmcclain.com. Like I say, he is just one of the all-time greats in our game, a, a terrific instructor, teacher, junior uh, instructor, college instructor, and obviously did a lot of great things with uh, some of the greatest players in the history of our game. He is highly sought after. And like I say, it's always a privilege to get to spend some time with him. I hope we get that privilege again a little bit later on this year or certainly in the early part of 2024. Coming up next is going to be a guy who won 14 times around the world and is now one of the all-time great golf analysts, and that is Frank Nabilo. Before I get to Frank, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And how does a 45-day free trial to Arco sound? Well, me and my golf have partnered with Arcos and are offering 14 free sensors and a 45-day free trial to Arcos Caddy. When you purchase any training aid on shop.meandmygolf.com. This is a limited time offer, so don't miss out. Again, go online to shop.meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabrics. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick-dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T dot com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. All right, now back and making his... Sixth appearance with me here on Next on the T is former PGA Tour Pro and now one of the all-time great broadcasters in our game, Frank Nabilo. Let me remind you a little bit about Frank's accomplishments. At the age of 18, he won the New Zealand Amateur Championship, becoming the second youngest player ever to win that title. He turned pro in 1979, got his first professional win in 1982 at the New South Wales PGA Championship. He won the New Zealand PGA Championship twice in 1985 and 87, joined the European Tour in 85 and got his first win on that tour at the 1988 PLM Open. Frank won 14 times around the world, including two Saracen World Opens, 
and the 1997 Greater Greensboro Chrysler Classic on the PGA Tour. He played on three international President's Cup teams. In the mid-90s, Frank recorded top 10 finishes in all four majors. He joined the, the Golf Channel in 2004 and was a lead analyst for their PGA Tour coverage, plus their in-studio shows Golf Central and Live From. And now he's knocking it out of the park as an analyst for CBS Sports. And I'm honored I get to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Frank, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, Chris, it's my pleasure. I was just uh, listening to the last part with uh, Jim, Jim McLean. Yeah, Jim's been a source of information for me as a player uh, during the 90s and, and also during TV. So it was great to hear his voice on your show. Well, I appreciate that very much. Frank, I want to start our time tonight talking about the wonderful event that you and your wife host called Lend a Hand Golf Outing. And I know our friend Mike McGee, Annika's husband, was there a part of that event. Talk about the great work that you and your wife, Selena, are doing with that event. Uh, you got to give credit where credit's due. That goes to my wife, actually, and my daughter this year, too, because she emceed. But uh, we thank you for bringing it up. We celebrated our 21st anniversary. And as a matter of fact, my wife and I, we were at Target today because that's where we do the shopping. We hope to take you know roughly around 1,000 kids shopping on December 9th. So that's the big part of it. That's really why we got into it uh, 21 years ago. But fortunately, because of the foundation that we formed, it's got a little more successful. The community's digged in, um, or dug in, should I say. And we try and put back in the community. We try and help with some scholarship programs, stipends to help, uh, you know, sort of finance kids when, when they're going through scholarships. But it's it's basically just trying to help the future. So who are, like I mentioned, Mike McGee was there. Who are some of the people that you attract and that are part of the event? Um, it, originally, it was uh, it started with the, the South Orlando Rotary, and we took over. And one of the things we did was to bring it to uh, to Lake Nona. We made it more of a community event. So, for example, I don't use other professionals with the exception of Mike Ziegler, who's a tremendous trick shot artist as well as a long driver. Uh, the rest of it is is people in the community, whether they come from Publix or Pepsi or Signature Flight Support. There are three sponsors that we've had since day one. Uh, they've been with us or members of the club, members of the community. So it, it's it's just more about community rather than professional golfers. Uh, we had a really big dinner on um, on the Sunday night. As I said, my daughter, uh, she emceed that. It was just under 250 people, and we had uh, 132 people playing golf on the Monday. So that was our big sort of fundraiser for the year. But it was it was very successful, and the weather the weather held out. So we uh, we were extremely grateful. Uh, kudos to both you and your wife and your daughter. That's fantastic stuff. Frank, I was I was listening to uh, your guest appearance uh, on Gary Williams's podcast, and during your conversation, you're quoted as saying golfers are overpaid, and I want to make sure that that remains in the right context. <laughs> Talk about what you meant by that. Yeah, it, it's more the ratings. Um, I didn't think it was going to be a hot ticket. Uh, obviously, it's turned out to be that way. Um, I know TV has has been in the news, sadly, with with Paul Azinger just recently. Um, and it's that's more uh, more uh, should I say some uh, it's more a sign of exactly how you know TV is struggling to make the money they used to covering the game. Golf is very very expensive to cover, and we don't get the ratings of some of the other sports. You know, for example, NFL or basketball, hockey, you name it. Um, and I and the quote I think I used was you know worldwide volleyball rates higher. Um, and volleyball players don't drive around and, and, and private jets and the like. So I think 
you know, with the advent of Live just over a few years ago, uh, you know, I, I think it's inflated the price, the price of professional golf. It, it really has, and it's made it more difficult because one of the advantages over the years of the PGA Tour, it's a nonprofit, and the ability to give back so much into various communities around, you know, the around North America. And then when you look at some of the other tours around the world, whether it be Australasia, where I hail from, or Europe, where I where I spend a big chunk of my time. Um, it's at a level that was manageable. Once you start pricing yourself out of the market, it makes it very, very difficult to sort of foster the sport. And, and I personally, I believe that's where we are right now, where, you know, a lot of the players are getting close to like NFL money and, and golfers have long careers. So I, I, I'm not going to want to say that we're at a tipping point, but I think we're edging very, very close to that right now, which sort of worries me. Yeah, and and I'm right there with you because one of the things that's been a head scratcher for me, Frank, and I mean when we look at twenty million dollar purses, and we're seeing huge purses on the LPGA Tour for 2024, and we see what the, what the PGA Tour has had this year and going into next year. And to your point, some media outlets are now starting to cut costs. I just don't know how how can this be sustainable. I, I'm I'm afraid that we are really putting the game in a dangerous spot. By trying to have, you know, we, obviously between Live and the PGA Tour, some things had to escalate to try to get the players to stay and all that sort of stuff. And we'll see where this partnership ends up uh, you know, coming out to. But I just feel like we are in a really, uh, you look at our game and our, our game is in such a wonderful place. So many people playing. It was one of the, the, the silver linings of what happened. Uh, with COVID-19 and getting people outside and, and playing our game and, and the game has grown and it feels like the game is in a great spot, but I'm afraid this money thing is really going to put us in a bad spot. Yeah. There's an old adage. If you're struggling with a question, the answer is always money. And that's where we are at the moment that, that fight for that. Uh, I also said to Gary Williams on the show, you know, if live had never come along, and I understand the reasons why it's here, and and I don't necessarily blame some of the players for jumping ship, especially at their respective ages. But if Lev never came along, I don't think there would be this sort of distrust and and this disillusionment with the amount of prize money they were playing for. Um, you know, I'm I'm on. You know, I believe Tiger Woods deserved every penny he got. He put more more money in players' pockets than anyone. I'm. The same thing was said for Biosteris in Europe. The same thing was said for Arnold Palmer. So it's not a first. But right now, we don't have Tiger Woods in the game. We have a very healthy game, and, and we're very fortunate. We came out of COVID with a lot of people actually sort of reinvesting um, in their own clubs and playing golf on, on, the, on the recreational level. So we were fortunate as a game. And we're also a little fortunate uh, when some of the players jumped ship and went to, to live that we've got this incredible influx of young players, especially from around the world. So, you know, I'm a little parochial uh, when it comes to that. You know, look at uh, Victor Hovland this year, incredible. Uh, Aberg, you know, just, uh, for example, if the, the players that went to live, if they didn't go to live, Aberg would not have made the European Ryder Cup team this year. I mean, he's been a breath of fresh air just over the last six or seven months. Now ranked 32 in the world. What was he? 3,900 or something in January. A lot of young American players, too, that are going through the college system. That's one thing I think the PGA Tour has done extremely well, the PGA Tour University program. So we, we have avenue now to get uh, an avenue now to get some really great young talent to come through. So on one hand, the game is incredibly good. But, you know, the game's very expensive. Uh, the quest for the ball to go 
simply further and further and further and golf courses get longer and longer, that makes it more and more expensive. So, you know, there's on one hand, we've got this this great influx of youth and talent. And on the other hand, I think we have a we, we sort of have an accounting issue on the back end <laughs> that needs to be sorted out. If the PIF and the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour, if that deal, that partnership never gets done, do you think that the PIF, they go full bore into investing and continuing to pay the live players crazy money and really get aggressive to go after more of the PGA Tour players in an effort to kind of spend the PGA Tour out of business? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, sadly, that answer is above my pay grade, but um, they've shown in the past that they don't like to give up. Uh, the amount of money they played for Ronaldo in soccer, they offered the same to Messi, uh, but Messi chose, obviously, to go to Miami. You know, they're, uh, what they've done in Formula One, um, they also have the largest, you know, largest company in the world. Aramco took over back in May from Apple as the number one company in the world. So it's not just the PIF fund. Um, you throw Aramco in there, which is what Formula One has done, and and Aramco is a huge part of the you know the televised coverage. I think Sky do a wonderful job of Formula One. They can also thank Aramco because Aramco is you know is sort of shown all the way around. So I'm sure that helps them with their advertising budget. I know it's shown on ESPN here. Um, so I, I think you can get a good product, obviously, with that amount of money being put in. Should it be you know used wisely? But really, to answer your question, yeah, why would they stop? You know, if they've committed um, already a couple of billion dollars and they have a product that's different, they obviously believe in it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone down that street. And, you know, for I just mentioned uh, Ludwig Aberg. You know, people forget in 2022, he was offered two and a half million dollars to go to live. They did look for some young players. Nobody talks about that. And he said no. Luckily for us, and, you know, I'm still a golf traditionalist. We've got to see the development, especially this year, of an amazing young player. Had he a jump ship, you know, 2022, I don't think he would have developed the same way. So, but to answer your question, no, I don't think they do stop. So that being the case, you got to believe Jay Monahan realizes that if this deal doesn't get done, they're in serious trouble. Do you think that that will be a push to make sure that this deal, whether it happens by the end of the year or they have to extend the deadline a little, little longer? Do you think this deal ultimately gets done because of the ramifications of what will happen if it doesn't? Yeah, I think you can, the debate right now, and you see that with the friction at the top of the PGA Tour, the debate on leadership, on on the style and the and the direction they should go to try and get this deal done. Even Rory McIlroy just recently resigning from, uh, from the board, um, and that space is now being taken over by Jordan Spieth. And and his sort of closing wish was, well, I hope the, de- the the deal gets done. If the deal gets done, the fight stops. Um, it, it still creates other problems, but at least it solidifies the game again, and, and somehow would get back to uh, to just seeing the best players on a regular basis. I think that would help TV out. Certainly would help the the network partners out because you know we're not getting, um, with the exception of the major championships, which I thought were great in 2024. I thought we had four wonderful major championships. Um, and you know, I actually even, the PGA Championship where Brooks Kepka won, I mean, that's where we saw Victor Hovland really show his merit too. Um, you know, we had a lot of great stories in that. You know, I'm not dishing John Rahm at the at the, the Masters or Wyndham Clark or, or Brian Harmon. That was, I thought the golf course, everything stood up that week extremely well. But, you know, you get a little bit more union, unity back in the game. I also think, Hopefully the sponsors too would get a little bit more value back for their dollar. You know, the, these sponsors that are hit week in, week out, they're big in the community. And 
And I know sometimes people sort of scoff a little bit at the 501c36, which is what the PGA Tour is. But, you know, we we have, as a sport, given given so much money back to charity. I don't ever want to see that change. I think it's a great model, but also the balance of golf around the world, the ease of players to go from Europe or Asia to America, play the PGA Tour. Just this, I want to see the sharing of great players around the world as well. So there's a, there's a, a lot of things that need to, you know, in, in my book, that need to be sort of tightened up a little bit going forward so we can all benefit as viewers and lovers of the game. Frank, I want to switch gears and go back into your young playing days. We just passed the 45th anniversary of when you played in the Eisenhower Trophy event in 1978. I recently had both John Cook and Bobby Clampett on the show. They played for the U.S. team that year, as did Jay Siegel and Scott Hoke. Jeff Clark, Paul Hartstone, and Phil Mosley were your teammates. The U.S. team won that week. You guys finished strong. You guys came in fourth. What do you remember about being a part of that tournament? Um, yeah, I, I, I remember that, that was it was huge. I'd won the New Zealand Amateur. And the, the, the worst part about the trip, of all the places you could go to in the world coming from New Zealand, it was Fiji, which is like one of the, you know, it's an hour and a half flight basically from Auckland. So um, I drew a short straw on that. It'd be great to fly around the world. Um, but it, Bobby Bobby and I were the two youngest there. And uh, I didn't get to meet Bobby, but I saw him play because I, I knew how good he was. Um, I could see that, you know, watching on TV in New Zealand on the odd time when they showed that or reading in the magazine. So I went out and watched him play. I think I'm not sure if it was the first round or the second round. And he played with Gary Cowan, who was the number one, the Canadian player, ranked the number one amateur in the world, I think, at that particular time. And Bobby was just on a different league. He really was. It was so impressive. Uh, there was internal out of bounds. He was hitting driver where Gary Cowan was hitting one irons. And I did. I ran into Jay Siegel. He'd uh, talked to me a little bit about perhaps going to school in, uh, in America, going to college. And I said, no, because I didn't know of any other New Zealander that had gone to college in America. I was too scared, really. You know, no one else had gone. So, so why should I? Um, I don't know if I regret that or not, but, but to see John Cook and uh, Scott Hope hit a shot, I think the 11th hole was a par five. And I remember it was like 2.30 over water. Pim was on the hard left. And Scott Hope from the middle of the field hit this three wood, and I'm like, man, these guys are good. So, yeah, they they became friends later on in life. Um, I, I beat Scott Hope in one of the Saracen World Opens uh, one year, and the very next year, um, as a defending champion, we were uh, we were living in Florida then. And you know, no one ever tells the good stories about Scott Hope. Scott said, "Do you want to lift?" He was flying privately to Chateau Land, and uh, he gave my wife and I a lift. And even though I'd have beaten him the year before, so but. Yeah, I saw those four Americans, and and they were that was the standard. That was the first time I saw, with the exception of watching some professionals in New Zealand, the first time I saw really uh, a level that you could equate to and go, that's that's the standard right now for your age, where you got to be. It was it was great. Frank, we've talked about this in the past, but as you know, this show now is a part of the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and in my hometown of Pittsburgh, and like I mentioned in your intro. Even though you had played in a few PGA championships before, you really burst onto the scene here in the U.S. at the 1994 U.S. Open, which was played at Oakmont. After the first round, you're, you're tied with Jack Nicholas, Hale Irwin, Ernie Els, one back of Tom Watson. And after the third round, you're in second all by yourself, two behind Ernie. That was also Mr. Palmer's final U.S. Open appearance right there in his backyard at Oakmont. And who can forget that while Ernie was finishing up his round that Friday, the infamous highway car chase scene with O.J. Simpson 
was also going on out west. So a lot going on that week. But what do you remember about it? Several things. Um, I owe a, a debt of gratitude to Ken Schofield. He fought very hard with the USGA to accept the top 15 money leaders of the uh, what was then the European tour. And that was the first time that the USGA said, OK, we're going to give the top 15 money winners in Europe an exemption. And so he basically talked to us, said, look, we've fought hard. We'd really appreciate it if you make the trip. So, And, and if you look back, that's why guys like Faldo didn't play a, as, as many U.S. Opens as what people people thought, because they only took the leading money winner up until that particular point. So there was that was the first thing, was getting an opportunity to play. The second one, not necessarily to go over my own personal life, but my parents got divorced when I was a teenager. And, you know, the... I was sort of a Slavic background in, in New Zealand, and, and I didn't see a lot of my, my grandparents or even my father cry. Grown men weren't weren't meant to cry. I'll never forget Arnold Palmer. He played with John Mahaffey, and I'm going to forget the third. I think it was Rocco Media. It might have been. It was. And I'd finished. I was in the locker room, and I was watching on the TV, and there was Arnold, Arnold Palmer going into the media center, obviously in his backyard. It was a standing ovation, and he had a towel because it was as hot as hell there. And uh, when I think that was the first or the second question, he cried. And um, I just never forget it. You know, like there's Arnold Palmer. I mean, he's as, as manly as you can get. And there he was taking these questions, crying. And at it, it, that part, when you know, I realized that's what a real, real man did, you know, they had a full range of emotion. And that was one of the biggest things I got out of that. And fortunately, I got to play with him in the Masters a few years later, no, no, the, the following year, 1995. And then got to know him through the golf channel. So he never disappointed. Um, Arnold was, he never met a stranger. So it's weird how that little, the little quirk of fate, but I'll never forget his, his appearance in the media center there. I thought that was one of the, the, the biggest memories I'll always have of him going forward and his handshake. In 96, you finished fourth at the Masters. Most people remember that event for Greg Norman's collapse and Nick Faldo's brilliant play to overtake him and win the green jacket that year. But, you shot one of the best rounds of the day on Sunday with a 69. What was that round like for you in that final round on Sunday? And, and were you watching the leaderboard in disbelief on with what was going on behind you? Yeah, I did. I saw Greg on the range there, and it wasn't like, you know, we thought he was going to lose. You just you often say, hey, good luck. We'll play well. Um, some people don't like to say good luck because as soon as someone gets a good bounce, they think, oh, you know, lucky guy. So, you know, you just say play well. And, you know, I was – third, fourth, last group, something like that. It was the first time I ever got to play with David Duvall. And I knew David was going to be a good player that day then. Um, I mean, just the way he hit the ball. But, um, you know, everybody talks about the roars at Augusta, but very few people talk about the groans. It's a, it's a, it's a deathly atmosphere. So when Greg was starting to um, make a few mistakes and obviously Faldo was just nipping at his heels like a terrier, you could, you could hear every bogey. Um, it was like a sigh that would go around the golf course. Um, I think Vin Scully said it better than anyone at Augusta. He said, you know, the roars, he said, it's like a gunshot going off on the rim of a bowl. It just reverberates all the way around. So the whole golf course gets to hear it. Well, it's the same with a sigh. You knew within a couple of minutes and you look up at a leaderboard and they're all manual leaderboards there, you'd see a number change and it would change downward and downward. So it was extremely sad from that point of view because, you know, golf's normally about excellence. Uh, but in order to get the job done, you've got to shoot the lowest score. You know, Faldo never gets enough credit for the, the closing round. 
and that two-on. Uh, some people think it was a three-on. He was in between a forward and a two-on. His second shot at 13 when they were tied. Or he might have had a one-shot lead. This is one of the great shots in golf because, the, you know, you see it in boxing. The hardest thing is to finish the fight off. And and that was such – it was a brilliant strike. It was a cruel blow. Um, and, you know, Greg Norman, like Ernie else, two players that probably deserved a green jacket and never got one. But, um, but yeah, Faldo's closing round was clinical. And it was – uh it was weird. It, it, it was a weird feeling because Australasia, it was a big deal. You know, you, you, you forget. Take Liv out of the equation. You know, Greg was a needle mover in those days. And um, it, it would have been huge for my part of the world, Australasia, for them to get their Masters champion. Obviously, they had to wait till 2013, Adam Scott, for that to happen. You won the 1997 Mexico Open, a tournament that John Cook's father, Jim, resurrected from the dead there was no mexico open from 1985 to 1989 and jim brought it back to life john would go on to win that tournament a couple of years before you did he won in 95 take us back to your win at the mexico open in 97 yeah that that was uh it, it was a it was a great year um in some respects because it was my official rookie year even though they changed the rules and on the pj tour um i was the first one affected with that so I, i'd actually broken the rookie money record but um i would i got diagnosed halfway through the year with inflammatory polyarthritis and yet i managed to win greensboro mexico and then hong kong the following week so it was part of like a a, um, my last really good run um and knowing that i was going to struggle health-wise going forward so it was a it was weird i I enjoyed being in mexico it was great that the the course was good um and you know when you're playing well or, or you know i was in a probably playing the best golf of my life through the mid nineties. So, you know, you think you you don't get intimidated by Sundays as much as you do when you, when you haven't been there for a while. So I was, I was in a good run, run of form and, you know, you just keep thinking I'm going to hit another good shot. So, and I think I, I flew to Hong Kong the very next week and won as well. So um, yeah, that was, that was, that was the sort of the, the last hurrah as it turned out. I didn't know it at the time, but, yeah, so they, uh, you remember the first and you remember the last. So. <laughs> Frank, just a couple more before I let you go. And you and Cookie, it almost feels like there's six degrees of separation between the two of you. Your careers took similar paths. You were both at the Golf Channel along with some other great friends at this show and John Mahaffey and Keith Hirschland. Talk about making the transition to television and getting to work with those guys. Well, you, you mentioned the one name, really. Uh, Keith Hirschland, my first ever producer. Um, it, it was tough. You know, I, 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 when my health wasn't uh, good enough, really, to, to, to continue as a competitive player, I know John kept playing uh, longer than I did. Um, I didn't know what to do, and I, I was lucky. You know, you get, you get lucky in this game every now and again. I was, I was lucky that I'd moved to Orlando because that's where the Golf Channel had, had started up. I was lucky that the Golf Channel had just picked up the deal for the Champions Tour. So they needed people. Um, I was lucky that I got to have Keith Hirschland as my first ever producer, who's incredibly talented, and Jim Kelly, who'd done just about everything in sport. So I had the person sitting next to me um, that that had sort of sat next to so many other people. And I had a producer that knew that knew how to make his people better. Um, uh, you ask, you know, Jerry Foltz, Kurt Byron, they they also went through uh, under Keith. You know, Keith taught you the right way to do TV. So I, I I wasn't very good early on. Um, I was I almost felt like I was dyslexic because I tried to prepare for TV the way I would do a golf tournament. I went out and looked at it, 
the course. But, you know, I, when you play golf, you play from the tee to the green. TV is in reverse. We all, we're always looking back towards the fairway, normally with approach shots. So I get caught whether I'm saying, do I say right bunker or is it player's right bunker? Or, you know, is it is it the viewer's right bunker? You know, which one is it? Is the pin on the left, but it's the left of your screen, but it's the right for your player. So I, I would sort of get tied up in knots with that. And uh, and I found that incredibly frustrating. But I was lucky. Keith was very patient with me. Um, I thought he hated me at the time because I wasn't very good. <laughs> but he was just trying to steer me along. So, yeah, I, I got lucky. I, I've worked with a lot of really good people in TV and you – you just try and pick their brains, and you and you 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 watch you watch and listen intently, and then you can't but get better when you're surrounded by good people. And same as CBS now, you know when you got Jim Jim Nance at the helm, um, you know Lance Barrow for so many years, I worked with them, and now Salah Shah, you know they have amazing production team. But you know that'd be dismissive to all the other people, whether it be at NBC or, or Golf Channel. Peter Ellis, for example, was great. I did a few open championships with him and, and you just get better by being around, around people that, that are that talented. So yeah, I, I was lucky right place at the right time, Chris. And now you're a character in Keith's book. Uh, he told you that, did it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was meant to keep a secret in that. Yeah. My <laughs> wife is as well, actually, if you read there very, very carefully, he did ask for permission. I'm like, ah, oh, what could he do? Yeah. But, yeah. See, he's yeah, good a- at everything. He can, he can produce golf and write books. Yeah, I'm jealous. I'm a motorcycle gang leader in one of the books. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know how he operates. Yeah, he, indeed. He, there's something in you though, there, isn't it? That is, <laughs> there'll be a little. Yeah, you just have to unravel the why. That's right, Frank. Before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on social media. Well, I'm I'm a hit and miss guy on social media. You know, I have a handle. I think it's Frank underscore Novelo at uh, but but just just love the game. That's that's the thing. I, I just you know that that's the, I'm just one of many people like yourself, Chris. You know that, that uh, golf's given me everything. So you know it's my way to to try and give back is to try and work hard and do my homework and do the best I can, just like you and a lot of other people that are involved in this game. So don't just follow me. Follow the other people that care. Well, Frank, it's always a huge thrill when I get the opportunity to have you as part of the show. You're one of my all-time favorite, not just all-time favorite guests. You're just one of my all-time favorite people on the planet. I can't thank you enough for all of your support over the years. And to come back six times now has meant a great deal to me. I hope we get that privilege again very soon in 2024. We'll do. I'm flattered. Happy Thanksgiving, my friend. Uh, Happy holidays to you and your family. We look forward to catching up soon. Cheers, Chris. See you, Frank. Folks, that is the great Frank Nabilo. They don't come better than that guy as as a wonderful player or as as much of a wonderful player as Frank was. As you can hear from where we started about how he's giving back to the community down there in Orlando. He is a 10 times better person than he was a player, and he was a great player. You don't become one of the world-class players and achieve the things that Frank did over the course of his career, winning 14 times around the world by not being a great player. Well, he has taken that even further with what a wonderful person he is. And now one of the all-time great golf analysts out there, starting at the Golf Channel, like we talked about when he started there with Keith, and now what he's doing with CBS. So Frank is, like I say, just a class individual. I can't thank him enough for what he has meant to me in this show over the years, and I am already looking forward to when we get to do it a seventh time. Coming up next is going to be Ron Reed. Ron was the starter at the U.S. Open for 23 years, 
He's a guy who I have followed out on Twitter for many years, so I'm very excited that I finally get to have him as part of the show. Before I get to Ron, I want to remind you about Two Under, men's performance wear. They're the unofficial underwear of the PGA and the 2020 Ryder Cup team. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, like David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code N-X-T-O-N-T-E-E-20, so next on T20, to save 20% at checkout. So go to 2under.com, that's a number, 2-U-N-D-R.com, 2-under, performance in your pants. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. All right, now next on the tee with me is Ron Reed. Ron was the starter at the U.S. Open for 23 years. He's written a book about his experiences, appropriately titled, Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. He is a wonderful follow on Twitter, at Golf Dinosaur, three R's at the end of that. When uh, you you go check him out, you're going to see a lot of great content there on his Twitter page. And we followed each other for years, and I'm excited that I finally get to have him as part of the show with me tonight. Hey, Ron, thanks for joining me. Chris, you're uh, you're terrific. Uh, I have one question to ask you right at the outset. Why have you only had Frank on six times? <laughs> I could listen to him forever, and uh, he's just one of the you and you nail it. He's just one of the really good people in the game of golf. Yes, he is. And like I say, hopefully that we get to number seven here very soon. But yeah, one of the most wonderful people you get to meet in this industry. Ron, I want to start off our time by going back to your early days. How'd you first get involved with the game of golf? Oh, I was a young lad, uh, roughly six years old, beating balls in my neighbor's field that I, I, I asked, I went to Albie Hollins. I said, Albie, can I mow your grass so that I can hit balls? And uh, that's how it all began outside of Chicago in LaGrange, Illinois. I read that you started at a high level with the Northern California Golf Association. Talk about your role that you took on for them. Well, I was really, uh, you say a high level. No, I, in the, uh, over my 10 years, I learned uh, a great deal about not only running championships, but uh, handicapping, course rating, I was deeply involved in. And uh, the gin system, I was there day one when we created the gin system, which now, of course, is around the United States, uh, implemented by golf associations all over the country. So I had a very broad background. When I started, I really was basically a gopher. I didn't know. I really didn't know a lot about uh, the history of the game and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, 43 years later, my career, uh, I learned I learned a great deal. So from the Northern California Golf Association, you move up to the United States Golf Association. So talk about how you got from the NCGA to the USGA. Well, they gave me a John Lopheimer, who went on to run the, L- the uh, LPGA as commissioner. He hired me, and um, they gave me a territory. They, I went from Alaska, Hawaii, all the way to Texas at one point, and I was the director of regional affairs. 
So I work with state and regional golf associations that are so important to the to the game of golf and especially on the amateur side all across the country. And I work with the leadership of those groups. And also, uh, you know, I'm proud of the, the volunteers that I brought into the USGA that serve, uh, just serve the game and, and, and uh, give back continuously to the game of golf. So from there, then for 23 years, when the USGA handed out assignments for the U.S. Open, your name is at the top of the sheet as the starter. How did you end up getting that assignment? Well, David Fay uh, had a Ill- serious illness. And one day, Frank Handigan, who was one of my mentors, walked in um, while I was having breakfast. And he said, uh, you're starting today. Welcome to showbiz. And I, I had no idea what that meant. And I went out. And my first day at Shinnecock in 1986 was a disaster. It rained uh, heavily. My umbrella, I threw it away. I didn't have a clipboard. I had nothing, including common sense. I didn't even <laughs> have a rain suit. So uh, things got better. And uh, by day four, I had things pretty well worked out. And uh, and every year I'd come to the U.S. Open, I'd look at the assignment sheet, and I would, I was just, I couldn't believe it. There was my name at the top of the sheet, starter of the U.S. Open. So uh, it continued through Pebble Beach in 2010. I look back at, Shinnecock in 86. I looked at the tee times for that Thursday morning. What was the, like the first three guys, the first tee time, 7 a.m., Bob Eek, Wayne Smith, Thomas Cleaver, first off the tee in the 86 U.S. Open. Does that sound right to you? Chris, you're good. Yes. Uh, I, I remember, you know, I'm nervous as I was, and um, I don't remember the name of player number four, but he hit a ball, Mr. Fairway, first fairway by uh, oh, four inches and it took four minutes and 58 seconds to find the ball. He, wow. he thought he was going to have to take an unplayable, but uh, my start at the U S open was not auspicious. <laughs> as nervous as you've seen young players teeing it up for the first time in a U.S. open, how nervous were you on that first tee for the first few years when they handed the microphone to you? And now you're going to start off a U.S. open. That was- you know, uh, this was a new experience. I had, you know, being in Pebble Beach for so many years, uh, they did they did have me start at Cypress Point Club a couple of years. So, and, and I got to know a lot of the players, and that really is what led to Frank handing me the, the microphone. Um, you know, I was lucky. I knew a lot of, a lot of the players, and that's what I wrote about. Um, it, it was not only introducing them on the first tee uh, i was designated as the player liaison so i i was uh, i was pretty close to a lot of the players who was the most nervous player that you saw teeing it up maybe for the first time in a u.s open i remember greg norman at oak hill in 1989 and i don't know why i mean why would greg norman be nervous over anything even live but uh, I do remember thinking to myself, you know, there there are nerves there, and uh, that surprised me. Did anyone ever hit a tee shot that made you say, oh, my, either from a positive tee shot because they hammered it down the fairway or maybe a player wished he could invoke the two off the first tee rule that many of us hackers use? 
Well, I remember Tiger Woods uh, drive uh, at uh, Torrey Pines when he yanked it left and long. That one was an oh my. And, of course, that's when he was playing with uh, Adam Scott and Phil Mickelson in, a, in the feature group there. Um, the drive I remember the most, though, was Arnold Palmer at Cherry Hills. He came to the tee about 20 minutes early, and I couldn't figure out what he was doing. Why so early? And what he really, what, what, what I learned later was he just wanted to see if anybody could, could reach the first green at Cherry Hills as he did when he won the U.S. Open. Uh, when was it? 1960 or 61. Yep. So uh, finally it was Arnold's turn. The wind was in his face, but he was Arnold Palmer. And he was going to try to drive the, the, the first green there at Cherry Hills. And he didn't make it. But uh, it's it's one I'll always remember. I was talking with Frank Nabilo in the in the previous segment about the 1994 U.S. Open. Speaking of Mr. Palmer, there at Oakmont, it was Mr. Palmer's last U.S. Open. He had an 8:40 tee time on that Friday. He's paired with John Mahaffey and another Western Pennsylvania great player in Rocco Mediate. What was it like that day? Do you remember that Friday and getting to announce him when he was going to tee it up for the last time at the U.S. Open? Well, how could I forget the first uh, that Thursday? Uh, you said it was at eight forty. He arrived about ten seconds before that, and he Frank was right. He was playing with Rocco and uh, John Mahaffey, and th- th- they stalled so that Arnold could get prepared to play that Thursday. And finally, his caddy Royce showed up, and Arnold got over the ball. This is on Thursday. And he took an inordinate amount of time. He, was, he wasn't comfortable. He turned to Clyde Luther, the referee, and he said, Clyde, count my clubs. And uh, the, <clears throat> Royce had been throwing clubs out of the bag as he raced to get to uh, Arnold that day. But on Friday, here's truly, for whatever reason, taped the decision of golf that said players A, B, and C. Rocco, John, and Arnold had to be there, present and ready to play at the same time. Well, Arnold wasn't there on Thursday. So I taped this to the to the table and I underscored just what I said, A, B, and C. And I dragged Arnold over to the to the table and I pointed this out to him. And he read it and he looked at me and he said, Well, I was ready to play. I had my putter. <laughs> I'd hit it from here to the, I'd hit it 30 yards if I had to. So, uh, you know, that was the, the Arnold Palmer was, uh, there's none better than Arnold Palmer. Looking back at the 1999 U.S. Open at Pinehurst, when Payne Stewart made his infamous 15-foot par putt on the final hole to avoid a, a Monday playoff with Phil Mickelson, did you get to see, when you after you're done and everybody is out playing, you can become a spectator and a fan like the rest of us and go out oh, and watch how these things unfold. You're darn right. Uh, I was uh, in about the fourth row. And, uh, and, and, and after he made that, he, he came uh, down the stairs there at Pinehurst toward the cart area. And uh, he looked at me and he said, um, champagne for the press room. He was going to pull a Tony Lima, as Tony <laughs> used to do. And it didn't dawn on me until later, champ pain. And uh, so I said, there are 3,000 people there. 
He said, that's okay. And I couldn't pull it off. I went to the general manager and he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and uh, no, I couldn't, couldn't pull it off. But that was Payne's wish. Speaking of Phil Heartbreak, 2006 at Wingfoot, when we all thought Phil was finally going to win the U.S. Open, oh. were you watching what unfolded on 18 when he let that tournament get away from him? Oh, I was with the captain of the Railing Ancient Golf Club, uh, Kiwi. Uh, name escapes, but uh, we were we couldn't believe it. He yanked it left and, and into the uh, corporate hospitality area, as I recall. And, uh, you know, it's just that's golf, isn't it? Uh, just a, a tragic event in the game of golf. When you got to Pebble Beach in 2010, did you know that was going to be your last Open as the starter? I did not. Uh, you know, I knew that my time would, would end, but uh, no, I didn't. And uh, I recall Steve Sands interviewed me on the first tee, and he intimated that he maybe he knew something. But listen, I had uh, 23 wonderful years, and uh, no regrets whatsoever. I made a lot of mistakes. I go back, I read my book, I laugh at my mistakes, and I learned to laugh because of many of those mistakes. I learned to laugh at myself. When you look back at all of the Opens that you were a starter for or other ones that you got to be in and around over the course of your career, what are some of the, your favorite venues that you've had an opportunity to visit? I uh, Shinnecock, to me, is is number uh, it's none better than Shinnecock. It's just a wonderful place and in in every respect. Great golf course and uh, uh of course Pebble Beach. I know it so well. I walked my dog there with Daddy Pepper many years. And um I, you know I I know the golf course very, very well. I love Pebble Beach golf course. Oakmont, uh one of the great tests of golf in the world and uh, those I think were my, probably my three favorites. Speaking of Pebble, I saw the video of you talking about the 1982 U.S. Open and how you were standing in the area when Jack Whitaker was interviewing Jack Nicholas, who had the opportunity to potentially win his fifth U.S. Open. And then you hear the roars when Tom Watson hits his amazing chip in on 17. And later you had the presence of mind to go get the flag from the 17th green. Tell that story. Well, I, first of all, I wish I had, um, I wish I had the had done my homework as well as you have uh, to talk to me. Um, I was standing there, and the roar went up. Uh, uh, Jack had just said, Jack Whitaker had just said to Jack Nicholas, "How does it feel to win your fifth? And up went the roar, and uh, and we all knew that uh, Tom Watson had done something sensational. The following day, I grabbed the flag, and uh, I had it for twenty-one years. And it was at uh, Olympia Fields that, um, of course, Tom's caddy was dying and uh, was not well. And I had had that flag for 21 years, and I thought, how appropriate would it be if I gave it to Tom's caddy? And uh, he had ALS, as you, I'm sure, remember. And I presented it to him on the tee. And it got pretty emotional, both of us. And um, Tom walked up. Tom didn't know that I had given him the flag. And he looked and he said, what's going on here? I, I said, I just gave Bruce the, the, the flag. Did I do the right thing? And Tom Watson looked at me and he said, you did the right thing. So it was a, a, an emotional moment at the U.S. Open. 
Ron, just a couple more before I let you go. And and I saw your tweet last week about the 1990 U.S. Amateur Public Links Tournament at Eastmoreland Golf Club. You said play was suspended when a beaver chewed a tree down and it fell during play. Yeah, I think it's sorry. I think, well, you know, we, we were trying to advance players along in stroke play. And uh, the call came in that overnight, uh, as you know, Oregon uh, is known for its beavers. <laughs> and this beaver went to work and it leveled, it dropped this tree, I believe, on the third green at Eastmoreland. Uh, so we suspended play. And and if, if I can uh, 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 tell another quickie, we had the U.S. Amateur Public Links at Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And we were all set to start play at 7 a.m. And suddenly there was a roar and a large cloud over the clubhouse. And 900 head of cattle were released from down the street in a real American cattle drive. And we had to suspend play on that occasion as well. It's you know, <laughs> two of the unusual things that happened at national championships. <laughs> That's great. Ron, before I let you go, let everyone know, how can they go out there and pick up a copy of your book? Well, you know, uh, it's now on Ron Reed, R-E-A-D, like readabook.com, Ron Reed. And I sign it. Uh, I hope it, people uh, enjoy the way it's signed. I signed it two times, and I think that uh, most people enjoy it. And and uh, if, do you have any other questions to ask of me? <laughs> I, I have something for you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen. This is the final pairing in the United States Open Championship. The players are Jack Nicholas of North Palm Beach, Florida, and Chris Mascaro of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mr. Mascaro has the honor. Play away, please. Wow. That is a heck of a gift to leave me with at the end of our conversation. That is something I will absolutely cherish forever, Ron. Thank you so much for that. I will cut that out and I will save that and you will, everybody that goes to my website will be, will be hearing that, that play for the rest of the, for the rest of the time. I can't thank you enough for that, Ron. You're, you're well, spectacular. I, I've, I've enjoyed this and I uh, wish I'd heard Jim McLean. I've known Jim a little bit too, but, uh, Frank, none better. Well done. Ron, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Happy holidays. I hope we get to do this again soon. I'd enjoy it. Thank you so much, Chris. Bye now. Take care, Ron. That is Ron Reed again. The spelling of his last name is R-E-A-D, just like uh, we should be doing with his book, reading that book. Again, it's titled Starting the U.S. Open from Shinnecock to Pebble Beach. You can get it on his website, ronreed.com, also available on Amazon. You can also follow him on Twitter again, at Golf Dinosaur with three R's at the end. So many great stories from his 23 years being a starter at the U.S. Open. I'm sure we have just really got to the tip of the iceberg. So I'm very much looking forward to having him back as part of the show. We'll try to do that very, very soon. Okay, coming up next is going to be PGA Tour Advanced Rules Official and a guy who's been a friend of this show for many years, and that is Stephen Cox. Before I get to Stephen, and folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. 
Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speedbolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z dot com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. All right, now back with me after far too long is PGA Tour Advanced Rules Official Stephen Cox. Stephen has been a rules official since 1997. He's had an accomplished amateur career back in his days over in the UK, including captaining the Great Britain team to a bronze medal in the 1996 World Student Championship and winning the Lincolnshire Open as an amateur as well. He is one of the unsung heroes out on the PGA Tour because it's not like he just rides up on a golf cart and hands out a ruling when someone wants one. What the PGA Tour rules official do are much, much bigger than that. We're going to talk an awful lot about that tonight, and I'm excited I get to have him back with me here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Stephen, how are you, my friend? Chris, I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. Again, far too long since I got to have you as part of this show. Shame on me, my apologies. Catch us up. What's been going on with you? Uh, all in good in the world. I, I don't quite know how to follow uh, Frank Noblo and and uh, and Ron Reed. Um, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get the chance to to chat. Uh, but I, I know I've known Ron for many years. We're we're members of the same golf club in in St Andrews, so um, he, he's a good man. And uh, when, when when we're ever out in Pebble Beach, it's always nice to uh, to cross paths and chat for sure. Stephen, like I mentioned, you guys do a whole lot more than just ride around on a golf cart when a player needs a ruling. Remind our listeners about everything that you and your team do, which sometimes starts a year before a tournament is played. Yeah, so I think I think the the first thing I'll say is is golf is inherently different to uh, to the other major league sports, certainly in the refereeing capacity. Um, the, the majority of other sports are are obviously primarily focused on one one ball. In one arena, uh, they do have, um, you know, whether it be basketball or American football, they have, you know, anywhere from three, four, five, six officials who are who are watching that field of play, and um, you know, their, their eyes and attentions are focused on that one ball in that one arena. And of course, you know, that's slightly different for us in the golfing world. We have essentially eighteen different arenas, and uh, we could have anywhere from you know, twelve to thirteen balls in motion at any one point in time. So. You know, it's difficult for us to track those golf balls. Um, and, you know, often or not, we, we are arriving in situations to, you know, specifically to do with rulings where we've not seen something firsthand. Um, you know, more often than not, the officials in other, in the other major league sports, they see for things firsthand. They've what, you know, they've seen it. They don't have to immediately, uh, lean on, uh, the replay broadcast. Um, but they clearly do with the technology that we've all got available to us now. Um, you know, but as, as referees, you know, we're a little bit behind the eight ball in a lot of situations. We, we, we are trying to establish the facts very, very quickly. We've not seen what's gone on. Um, and, uh, that's why it takes a little bit of a time sometimes to, to establish, 
uh, what what the correct procedure is. Uh, but I, I put it in three buckets, really, in, in terms of what I do um, as an official. Course setup is is the first one I, I mentioned, and, and then again, this is where we're slightly different to uh, to, to the other officials in these other sports is that we do as you mentioned earlier get very much uh into the detail of of our playing surfaces um you know we've got 18 of them and we get uh you know certainly when it comes to working with our architectural uh, partners who are generally speaking retained at these venues that we go to you know it takes an awful lot of time for us to make changes should we want to you know put bunkers in or change contourings of greens um and for Massa, if we just want to make just agronomic changes too, in terms of switching out of grass types or narrowing of fairways and all that sort of stuff, it's not that's not sort of some that you can just flick a switch and it'll be be ready in a few weeks. You know, this this often takes you know years for it to grow in and and make sure that you know the the grasses have had time to 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 withstand a you know a, a really strong and hot summer in the mid Atlantic, for example. Uh, so when we do we do play at the venue and we do uh, put the grasses under you know stress because we are you know rolling and, and playing it firmer and faster um what that than what these grasses would typically endure on a on a regular week for their for their membership that they can they can withstand that pressure and and that's why it it you know it takes an awful lot of time to you know to you know for for us to planning in advance to 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 get a to get what we want so um, I think the other bucket is is pace of play. We've spent an awful lot of time on the on our field of play, ensuring that uh, that the guys play in a in a timely fashion. It, it, obviously, it's um, you know it can be difficult at times. You know, we've got a lot of players certainly in the through the summer months, um, hundred and fifty six in many cases. Uh, and then this the third the third bracket I'll put into the rules of golf, which is really what we're known for. You know, I'm known for people just think oh, I just give rulings, but no, the, the reality is, is that if you look at the amount of time I spend working, that the, the amount of time actually spending giving a ruling is, is actually a small fraction of, of what I do in terms of conducting of a, of a competition. But that's where you get the most attention, obviously, because, you know, it, whether it be contentious or otherwise, we tend to feature on the broadcast. Uh, either in a ruling situation or often when you know when the weather is is poor and we're coming out to explain to the to the viewers exactly what what's going on and what the plan is going forward so that, that that's where i put it in those sort of three buckets really steven you mentioned contentious have you ever had to deal with a player and when it was started to get contentious how do you keep everything sort of on a on a level calm manner out on the golf course because you what I'm I imagine the very last thing you want is a contentious interaction between you and a player. Yeah, sometimes it's yeah, you know, again, it's our sport is um is non contact. And um, you know, you, you you it's very easy to assume that our athletes are, are not as focused as someone who's playing a contact sport, for example, but you know, that's that's not the case. Our guys are extremely focused and in when you interject yourself in their world, then you need to be aware and you need to, you know, you have everything aligned and um you know that they they obviously are competitors and you know, a lot of them are very fierce competitors and, and they're looking to win and, and you come in and and often in sometimes you give them the, the wrong answer that they're looking for or for that matter you know, give them a some sort of slow play warning and, and call them out and ask them to speed up. You know, it, it the situations can 
um, can become tense. Um, but you know, most of them, generally speaking, have that familiarity level with us. So that so when they see us coming, they know they pretty much know what's gonna uh, gonna occur. But in terms of rule situations. You know, we obviously, if a player is unhappy about the decision, doesn't like it, or, or thinks that, the, particularly if it's a judgment call, um, he has the ability to call for a second opinion. I was up, I was only up there last week at uh, Sea Island, last event of the year. Uh, Mackenzie Hughes on hole number uh, number eleven, and you know, he hit it just beyond the the, the bunker at uh, the fairway bunker at number eleven, was embedded in the sand, and you know, there is an exception to uh, to the embedded ball rule, which. Which would deny a player for relief should it be embedded in sand, um, and he was in that sort of dune land, and um, you know it, there wasn't any contentious uh, conversations between myself and McKenzie. He just wanted a second opinion. He, obviously, he's he's trying to contend for the championship at that point, and um, you know clearly we honoured it. There are other situations where it doesn't quite go so well. I, had a, I can remember a situation at the Barclays tournament. Few years back, when Jordan just came out, Jordan Spieth, and and uh, yeah, he uh, he had stood stood on his golf ball in this pre nineteen. I hasten to add, thanks. That was, it was a really really nice rules change that we had there. He was in he was in uh, his ball was in a penalty area, and he was searching for it, and he stood on it. Um, that's obviously that rules now subsequently changed, but back in the day, he you know he had every every intention of playing his golf golf ball. If it have uh, it have been able to find it in the long grass, and uh, this was brought to my attention, and it, this was on a Friday. There was, uh, and he was at that point grinding to make the cut, and I, I walked with him on the next hole and said, "Hey, can you just walk me through what happened um, on the last hole?" And he said, "Oh, I was searching for a golf ball, and I stood on it." And at that point in time, I chose not to not to play it, and I took penalty or relief, and unfortunately. Pre the rules changes, um, you know, he he moved his ball vertically vertically downwards and and was subject to a penalty stroke. So I had to inform him of that and said that I was going to speak to him in the scoring area uh, after the round. And you know, and he's he very quickly fired back. Well, that's exactly where you should have handled this from the very beginning. And um, you know, the, the 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 method for for me to talk to Jordan at that point on I think it was the twelfth or the thirteenth hole as he was trying to make the cut is clearly if he. He needs to know he's going to get a penalty stroke, so he can factor that in to try and, um, to try and, you know, making sure that the last thing I'd want is a situation where, you know, he got to the 18th green, felt he was, you know, right on the cut mark, two potted, and then what well, he walked into scoring error, and I tagged a, tagged, tagged a penalty stroke on without I knew that was going to happen seven or eight holes ago. So in that situation, we had to tell him quickly, so he had, you know, time to adjust strategically. Um, and do fair, Jordan was, you know, he was frustrated at the time. Once he, he realized there was a chance of getting a penalty, he was frustrated that I'd ejected myself into his world as he was trying to make the cut. Um, but once we'd had the opportunity to speak to him after the, after the round, he, he fully understood. And that was a learning experience for everyone. So, um, yeah, the air was cleared and, and everyone went in their, in their separate ways. But, you know, that's just the nature of being an official. You know, you're going to get situations which are, which are tense and, and very, very awkward, particularly when penalties are involved. And, you know, you just, you've got to, you've got to remain calm. It's as simple as that. Stephen, you mentioned a moment ago, pace of play. That's been one of the talks of the tour for a couple of years now. 
seems to be something that is brewing almost on a weekly basis. How do you deal with pace of play issues when you see it's the same players over and over again and it's causing other players in the field to get frustrated? How do you get guys to move along quicker? Well, I think the pace of play debate has been, it's not a new one. It's, it's not just been going on the last you know, five years. If you look back in, and Ron would be a perfect man to uh, to illustrate this, you know, you look back at all the historical literature, I mean, pace of play was, you know, an issue back in the Harry Varden days. So um, this is not a new subject. Um, the guys are playing for, uh, you know, is, there's more at stake arguably than, than there have, ever has been. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we face is that, as I said to you before, is that you know we obviously have an obligation to try and provide as as much of a as much membership opportunities and playing opportunities as possible, and and that has a negative effect on on our pace. But just in all walks of life, you've got people who do things quicker than others, and and golf is is certainly one of those. And um, and it's very easy to to assume that us as officials aren't doing anything by the fact that we don't tell anybody that. I mean, obviously, people are crying out for penalties. Um, the rules of golf. 319 did a really, really good job uh, governing bodies of tidying up ticky-tack penalties. Um, and and our pay, pace of play policy is very much is very much written to avoid what I'd call ticky-tack penalties. So you you've got to be you've got to be asleep at the wheel to um to to get a penalty. We do an awful lot of talking with players, uh, whether that be pre or during tournament rounds. To educate them on on where they can improve, and I'll come on to that in a little bit. Um, but you know, during if you actually sat with me, you know, for the twelve hours on a golf course, you'd be, you'd think you know you'd understand and you'd you'd see, wow, these guys just that's all they that's all they talk about. And we're and we're very proactive in in getting in there and warning players, and if necessary, we'll go in there and time them. Um, and you know, further to that, we will use our uh, other powers within our. our um, Within our regulations to to sanction those those very slowest players, and and that was that was a bit of a shift in our strategy three or four years ago. Our tournament committee and ultimately our board gave us the direction to, particularly when you've got a hundred, well, seventy eight players in 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 one wave, it's very difficult to monitor all seventy eight of those. So they, their focus really asked us they asked us to shift our focus to really um, spend our time looking after the very very slowest players. Um, and, and that, that's generally speaking where our, fo- our focus, uh, remains in it. And again, if you, if you're in position and you, you stay in position with a group in front, then generally speaking, you're going to be okay. Um, but, uh, one of the, one of the changes that we we're implementing for this year in 2024 is, um, you know, we'll obviously continue to do our field based, um, our application of pace of the pace of play policy that you know of, you know, we obviously would continue still continue continue warning players, and we will continue to time players individually, or or for that matter as a group. Um, and should they have bad times, then they will obviously, or second bad times, they will get penalty strokes, um, and they will trigger financial penalties. But the one aspect which we are introducing now is that um, every week. We will get statistical data on all of the players. So, for example, last week at RSM, there was 156 players in the field. You know, on Monday morning after the tournament, I, I can see a report, and it will rank uh, every player uh, from one to 156 to see who is the who are the slowest players. So, what we've actually done for 2024 
um, is that um, we've devised a system whereby um, under the regulations, um, the top, you know, let's say five to 10% slowest players will be will be subject to disciplinary action if they continue to be uh, the slowest players for, you know, on a week to week basis. And the people who are generating that data is the player himself. And it's, it's not subjective to whether I think someone's quick or slow. I mean, the, the, the facts are the fact are, are, you know, this, these are the players stroke times and um, it allows us to use that data and go back to the player and say, Hey, look, come on, you're trending in the wrong direction. It breaks it down into various different categories, whether it be tee shots, fairway shots, approach shots, um, chipping and putting. So you can really go into detail with a player and, and work with him and say, Hey, have you, have you changed your, your putting routine just recently? Because I noticed that your, uh, you know, your, your putting average has gone from X to Y. So it really, it, it, it's super useful, um, as an educational tool. And, and, and it really, and it really highlights those guys that are, you know, the, the problem week in, week out. So that, that's going to be a nice change for us for sure. Speaking of the RSM Classic, Stephen, a dominant performance by Ludwig Aberg. He shoots back-to-back 61s in the final two rounds, wins by four. Going back to prior to the, the Ryder Cup, I questioned Luke Donald when he picked him to play on the European team because Aberg hasn't even played in a major yet. But clearly Luke Donald knew what he was doing. This guy looks like he is going to be a force in 2024. I mean, everything we've seen so far it would be difficult to to come to a different conclusion than that. Luke's a very smart guy and he's, he's, you know, very thoughtful and, and, you know, obviously did a wonderful job in Rome and, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a fairly brave move for, for someone who hasn't necessarily, you know, shown his credentials on the, on the biggest stage. Clearly Luke had played with him. Um, others had played alongside him and, and given him feedback. And, but, you know, obviously there was enough there to, to persuade the, the the captain and and his vice captains to to make that uh, to that commitment and you know it's it's quite it's been quite phenomenal his uh, his his you know his performance today is on the on the professional circuit and I'm super excited how he's gonna how he's gonna progress in 2024. Speaking of forces, your daughter Nancy has had some exciting things happen over the last year or so. She was the Florida Times Union First Coast Player of the Year. She won the district and regional titles, and she recently signed to play her college golf at Florida Atlantic. Talk about your daughter Nancy. Yeah, she's she's doing great. Um, I'm, I've got three daughters, and she's the only one who's uh, who's stuck with it and and is playing the game. And you know, we're obviously delighted that that you know, firstly she's playing and she loves it, and and that she's. Uh, you know, she's going to go and play collegiate golf, which is, which is wonderful. When I was young, it, there, there weren't that many guys from the, the UK coming over at that point in time to play collegiate golf. I wish, I wish actually I'd uh, explored it and, and, and taken that route myself, but I, I chose a slightly different direction and I'm super proud of her. You know, she's, she's really, she's really progressing well. I think Heather Bowie Young, who is, um, who's got a wonderful playing record. Herself, you know, winner on the LPGA tour and Solheim Cup. And she's so, and she's the, the head women's coach there at, at FAU. I think it's, it's a perfect fit for her. They've really bonded nicely. She was down there last weekend, uh, went to a football game, uh, 
unfortunately they lost. I think they were playing Tulane and got waxed. And then she went that night, she went to the basketball and she had high expectations and ended up losing to Brian. So um, hopefully things change uh, in that regard. But no, she's she can't wait to get started. She's um, she's really excited about uh, the, the season for 2024 and, and starting her collegiate career. And I read that she made a hole in one playing alongside you in 2021 at the parent child tournament. The tournament was held at Celebration Golf Course out in Kissimmee. And she made a hole in one on the first hole of the day. What was it like watching your daughter make a hole in one? Well, that was, that was pretty wild. It was, uh, yeah, first, so we were shotgun starting the second round and we were, you know, we were on the borderline of contention and it was, we were, it was a par three and, and you couldn't quite see the surface of the green. And I went, um, I went first and, and I absolutely flushed it right at the stick. And then she followed me and hit, hit a similar looking shot straight at the flag. And I saw one, one ball about 15 feet behind the flag and there was no sign of another one so i walked up and i saw a ball in the hole and you know I, the first thing that was going through my mind was i knew it was either mine or nancy's and the first thought was, please don't be my ball you know i've had a hole in one before she hasn't had one i was like please don't be my ball so i of course they said hey there's one in the hole here and do you want to check out whose it is and anyway she picked it out and it's hers so yeah, that was that was that was a pretty sweet moment. Uh, didn't see it go in, but um, you know, good looking Sean, and uh, great way to start the day for sure. Won't forget that one for a while. She got into the game later than most kids who play this game. Well, what sparked her interest to get started? Because I read that she got started in her teens, and a game that usually takes most kids, most people, ten years just to get bad at. She got pretty good pretty quickly. Talk about why yeah. she got into the game in her teens and how quickly she got good. Yeah, she was sort of, uh, she, she was pottering around, you know, when she was 11 with me, just messing around on the range. Um, so, and she, you know, she, it was only when she got into her teens that she started to mature and start, started playing competitively. But she she had got the golf club in her hand a little bit before that. But we were, as a kid growing up, we were always, really stress the importance of playing multiple sports in the UK. It's a bit like education. You know, you didn't go to school and just learn math. You know, you, you, you learned at that age, you learned a whole range of different sports. So she was playing, you know, she, she was doing gymnastics and she, she was playing soccer and she was doing so many sports at that age that golf was a little bit on the sidelines. And, um, you know, it was only when she started to mature that she, and, you know, she, she, decided that golf was going to be her passion at that point the other sports fell away so that's why she was probably a little bit of a late a late learner but and i, and I didn't necessarily concern to that because concern everybody progresses at a different speed and yes of course there are um those guys who are the whether it be male or female that that, are, that progress and our world beaters lexi is a good example she was a world beater so young whatever it was 12 13 everybody knew she was going to be phenomenal and and you can say the same for the likes of Sergio. We, we knew Sergio from the age of 14 or 15 was going to be, you know, a wonderful player. But there's a lot of players that that are on a different pathway, you know, time-wise. And and so it didn't bother me at all. I knew that I knew that uh, Nance was not going to be a world-beater at 14, but I knew that as she continued this trajectory, that I, I knew that she was she was going to be in a good place when it really started to matter. And and that's that's the way it's played out. 
even speaking of places where you're a member at, I know you're a member at TPC Sawgrass and you were intimately involved with the cleanup and the restoration of that course following Hurricane Irma. We had a wonderful Players' Championship earlier this year. How do you feel about the condition of the course and is anything going to be different when we get back there in March? So we're just in the process of, uh, it's just reopened following overseeding. So Jeff Potts and his team there, do you know, they're, they're expert. Jeff came from TPC Scottsdale. So obviously that's an overseeded venue. So he's, he's very, very knowledgeable in that regard. And, and obviously we, when we moved from the, from the May date back into March, back into an overseeded golf course, he was the perfect choice for us. And, uh, you know, he's, the more time he spends here, the, the more, the more knowledgeable he becomes and, and the better the golf course becomes. Um, so, you know, it's a little bit, the, the, the grasses, if you went out of there right now, are a little bit in, immature, as you would expect. But by March, uh, our expectations are they're going to be just phenomenal. Last year was outstanding, and I have seen no reason why um, that they won't be exactly the same again. Um, not, um, not, I wouldn't say any architectural or competitive enhancements. Um, we're obviously um, always discussing with our with our various different uh, constituent partners uh, ways to improve the facility both inside and outside of the ropes but the biggest changes that we've made this year really do feature outside of the ropes um and and trying to improve our service networks um in and around the clubhouse our player amenities for example so that's that's where our investment has um has has been focused uh uh, for, for for leading into the 2024 event and uh, that's not to say that you know here in the well we tend to have a, about four weeks um in a, in the june closure um where we do a lot of verification work that's where we tend to do all about the majority of our um heavy lifting so it doesn't disturb the resort guests and uh, and members who who are playing there uh, but I, I think you'll probably maybe see some stuff in the june closure of, of post the 2024 event uh, which will be super cool, but um, you know, it, it, we're never s- sitting still. We're always discussing, you know, the next the next best thing, and um, you know, we've got some real good plans here over the next five to ten years that we're you know very excited about. Stephen, when we think about TPC Sawgrass and the players, we immediately go to the seventeenth hole in the Island Green, and since you're a member there and have been for a while, I'm guessing you've seen it play in all kinds of weather conditions. What's the toughest conditions? you've ever faced standing on the tee box of that 17th hole? I think without any question, and the, the, the year is going to escape me here. You might need to help me out. Um, so it would be 2022, I think. Um, and when it was the Monday finish, and that was the day where we had 14, 40 mile an hour winds. And I mean, look, that's a wonderful golf hole. But, uh, you know, when... That, but it's it's just it was treacherous um with that with those type of winds it was such a difficult golf hole it's not very long but when you got those sort of winds it was we, i don't know how many golf balls we had in the water that day but it was total carnage and uh, you were just you were just desperate to find the putting surface and get out there with the three so that's the that's by far the the most challenging uh, you know players championship that we've that we've experienced we moved tees all over the place i can remember robbie Ware, who was setting 
setting up on the back nine. We 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 assign um, a setup crew to a front nine and a back nine. And Robbie Ware, who's a longtime veteran on the PGA Tour, he's set he's been setting the back nine at the at the Players Championship for 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 good many years. He, he called me over and said, I, "I'm actually thinking about going up to the next tee up." And I'm like, "What?" I said, "That's like 50 yards." And I'm like, "He's yeah." I'm like, well, it's going to be blowing right into their face. It's a hard, it's going to be a hard enough hole as it is. You know, if that's what we need to do, then don't don't hesitate. Well, I'm glad we did. They were, and the guys were hitting big clubs into 18 that day, and and uh, you know, typically they're hitting you know gap wedge or or maybe just a little baby nine iron into 17. But the clubs they were hitting in, into 17 that day was, you know, was scary. So that's by far the, the most challenging circumstances that uh, um, that we face, and 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 it's and you know you're obviously worried about not just balls moving on the green and and the the playability of the golf course, but it's everything that comes with it. You know, there's an awful lot of trees around that property, so when you get when you get winds north of thirty miles an hour, and you get pines and oaks and and you know forty thousand, forty five thousand people on site, it. it, it it, it, that's where I get nervous more than anything because you're just keeping your fingers and toes crossed. That um, I think it was Ron was talking about trees falling down due to a beaver. It wasn't that long ago <laughs> that two two pine trees fell at the Masters um, across the the seventeenth tee. You know, and you know these are these are the things that we are concerned about. And fortunately, certainly in that situation at the Masters tournament, nobody was uh, nobody was was injured, but. Um, you know, at that particular day, I know I can I can remember it now. I was I was so nervous about just making sure that no limbs or trees fell and anybody was injured. But thankfully, we came away unscathed. Stephen, just a couple more before I let you go. And one of the popular questions that golf fans like to bring up periodically is, if you could change one rule in golf, what would it be? And I've always said it should be a free drop if your ball rolls into a divot in the fairway. It's never made sense to me that if I had a good drive in the middle of the fairway or in the short grass at all, how in the world should it be fair that my shot is infinitely more challenging than my playing partner who might have hit it just a foot from mine? He's got a perfect lie. I'm in a hole. Which rule do you think the USGA and the RNA should take another look at? Well, let me just let me just talk to that because that's that's a that's an interesting subject. Um, you know whether you should get relief from a from a ball in a in a divot and you know i look i i can subscribe to everything you've said it, you know it is it is on you know it's it's very unfortunate that those situations happen but let me put a slightly different perspective on it in terms of providing a little bit of an understanding in terms of where we are uh, in the current world so you know from our our perspective uh, it's an out it's an outside sport and um golf was never made to be perfect it's not we're not playing an artificial artificial turf and and um in 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 a, in a similar fashion to you're not necessarily guaranteed a bad life you hit it in the rough uh you're not always guaranteed a a good life you hit it on the fairway and um you know dealing with such adversity is part of our sport um i can remember a situation at brookline on the last on the last round on the very first hole uh scotty scheffler hit a beautiful tee shot off the first tee and it landed in a divot and uh you know 
some players may have reacted slightly differently. It was an unfortunate circumstance. It was a nasty divot. And he took it in his stride and hit a beautiful shot, a little punch, whatever it was, into about 12 feet and made it for a three. Now, Scotty in that situation dealt with that adversity. Uh, and that's what the game asks of you. He was mentally strong enough to deal with it. And, you know, that there are going to be situations where players don't deal with that adversity so well. And, and that those are the tests that the, the, the game has, has has for you. I think the other um, theoretical side from sort of my world is if you're going to give relief from a divot, where does that start and finish? Because generally speaking, every piece of turf out there is has been at some point a divot. So are we saying that if the player has a less than perfect lie and it's sitting down in some type of depression, at what point does it become a divot or not? So it, it'd be, it would be it would be very, very difficult. I actually was out in St Andrews fairly recently where you have a lot of short collection areas and I took a picture into the fading sun and um, it was a sea of divots. It wasn't actually divots in the fact that the turf had was not there. It was just a sea of divots that had over time repaired, but because of the light, you could see the divots all over the place. And I was thinking to myself, goodness me, I wish I could take a picture of that and share with that with the world in terms of why why we shouldn't be granting relief for divots in the fairway, because you'd never you'd never stop granting relief in that particular situation. So you know in terms of changes that I would see, I think to be fair, the governing bodies between the RNA and the USGA did a wonderful job in um in ensuring that uh, a lot of the, well, I did, like I said in, in, earlier in the, in the in the podcast, you know, a lot of those um, just unfortunate, silly penalties were eradicated from from our sport. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were, that we were dealing with Oakmont and Dustin Johnson's ball moving at a dress on a potting green, and for us as officials trying to determine whether he had caused the ball to move or not. You know, thankfully that that's not part of our world anymore, and and the number of rules situations which are um are you know at the forefront of of a, of a of a of a tournament and and are taking away from other positive storylines those are few and far between now you know we now we did have one in the corn ferry tour championship fairly recently um with Shabtuton, which was incredibly unfortunate and 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 those are the ones that give me heartache you know those that in that situation the player is trying to proceed thinks he's proceeding in the right way it's a procedural penalty um the player arguably didn't gain an advantage by what he did but unfortunately he didn't follow the correct procedures that the rules dictate and was penalized accordingly and and i think that's where i that's where I have a slight hang up with with some of the rules is, you know, I, I have no problem with penalizing players if the penalty fits the crime. But there are situations that um, certainly as it potentially pertains to some of the equipment stuff that I start to scratch my head that, you know, do, do, does the penalty fit the crime? But um, that's not in any shape or form critical of our governing bodies, because I'd like to say they've done a wonderful job over the last you know, four or five years in cleaning that though those type situations up and, and are absolutely one hundred percent committed in in ensuring that other situations are are also tidied up to to ensure that the rules are fair for everybody. Stephen, one more before I let you go. And you're a Jacksonville Jaguars fan now. 
They're seven and three. What are your That's expectations right. for them for the rest of the season? Well, look. Anytime you start asking me about football, that's that's a, that's scary as an, as an Englishman. Um, <laughs> I, my my knowledge of football is is not great. I love the sport, um, and obviously, I was delighted that they managed to win at the weekend after um, a rather unfortunate performance uh, against the Forty Niners. Um, but look, it's wonderful for our city for the, for for them to get off to a positive start. Hopefully, hopefully they can. They can keep it going, and we can, you know, win our division and and have a have a real a real another good run in the playoffs. Um, but you know, the the team is is young, and we've got a great quarterback, and you know, hopefully, like I say, we can uh, we can scare some of these bigger teams. Even before I let you go, remind our listeners how can they stay up to date with you and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Yeah, I'm not a huge, I'm not massive on social media, uh, but I am on Twitter, Stephen Cox 27. Um, also, uh, feel free to, to, to jump on and, uh, follow, uh, our PGA Tool Rules Department. Uh, and again, on Twitter, um, simple handle is just PGA Tool Rules. And that's where you can, uh, fire us, ask us questions about various different things and you'll get explanations about why we do things certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, those are, those are two pretty good sites for you. For you to follow and if, if those if our listeners are supporting the pga tour then we we thank you for uh for your continued support well Stephen, i hope i get the privilege of catching up with you in person next year at the tour championship here in atlanta i'd love to say hello to you in person but i can't thank you enough for coming back and being part of the show again tonight next time around it's going to be hopefully much much sooner chris thank you very much it's always a pleasure Stephen, happy holidays to you and your family we'll catch up soon Likewise. Thank you. See you, Stephen. That is Stephen Cox, tournament lead rules official for the PGA Tour. Again, you can follow him on Twitter at StephenCox27. Stephen joined me very early on in this show's history and uh, couldn't have been more thankful to him for jumping on the show back when he did. And he is a, a wonderful official and an even better person. I hope his daughter continues to have great success. Looking forward to watching the great things that she accomplishes. They're at Florida Atlantic. And like I say, hopefully uh, I'll get Stephen back on the show again early next season and then get the uh, the privilege of catching up with him, hopefully here in town at the Tour Championship. But a great guy and a wonderful follow. Get, again, check out uh, the, the PGA Tour Rules official. If you didn't know, at PGA Tour Rules, got questions about what you're seeing, hit him up there on Twitter. So like I say, uh, great stuff from Stephen. We'll catch up with him again very, very soon. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, you've heard me talk about some great products that I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show. And another one that stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. I want to send out my sincere thanks again to Jim McLean, Frank Nabilo, Ron Reed, and Stephen Cox for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. He'll be back and join me on the show as he does every other week. One of my all-time favorite people on the planet and one of the radio hosts at 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh, Paul Alexander 
will join me. He is a guest Hall of Famer with us over on the football side on Thursday Night Tailgate. Very excited to have him here on the golf show. Senior writer for Killarney Golf Media and Wisconsin.golf, Gary Diamato, will make his next On the Tee debut with me, as will Chris Knobloch, who is the Director of Instruction at Eagles Landing Golf Club in Noonan, Georgia, which is just a little bit south of me here in Atlanta. So a lot of great stuff on tap for you next week. I hope you'll come back, tune in, and be a part of it with us. You can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on TribLive.com and the Pittsburgh Tribune review site. Go to TribLive.com, click on sports, and then podcasts, and you're going to find this show front and center available for you free on there. You can also find the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audio Boom, and Player.fm. And as always, my thanks to the folks at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts and a staff pick. Please download their free app and stream your favorite podcast right there from your favorite device. But most of all, as always, my sincere thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Until then, hit them straight, my friends.